The developed world, at the latter middle stages of its said development, between 1948 and 1979, before the mass introduction of the office computer, had seen a present growth in productivity and wages of relative similarity. It was assumed that with the introduction of computers and the increased productivity of the world's new semi-hybrid office workers, the wages would also increase. But they did not. They dropped. I.e. more work for less pay as a common demonstrable trend. The earlier percent growth number from 48 to 79 before these computers was 108% and it was brought to ruin. That number pops up a lot in the statistics and for the initiated in many of the ancient texts be they Abrahamic, Vedas, Tantras, Sutras or what have you. I'm not a numerologist but just like with astrology it is sometimes kind on the analytical mind to rest and enjoy beautiful patterns. This abundant and uh, semi-perfect number is found in the angles surrounding the walls of the world's largest office building, the Pentagon, the one in Washington and the one of the Euclidean space. The feelings we have about that are either painful, pleasant or neutral as they resonate from the six senses of smell, touch, taste, hearing, sight and consciousness throughout the past, present and the future. We might indeed be certain or uncertain about these 54 possible emotions. That is, they are formless or of form in terms of their cause. Thus finally we reach a total of 108 distinct libidinal opinions on the matter. Reminding us, one way or another, that we are still in this samsaric world. A world which we recognize as one where the distance of our Earth to our Sun is also 108 times the diameter of the Sun and the distance between the Earth and the Moon is also 108 times the diameter of the Moon. The cosmic stroke of luck, if you like, that the Sun and Moon both have approximately the same ratio between their diameters and their distance to Earth, means their apparent sizes in Earth's sky are about the same, which is what makes total solar eclipses possible. Some would like to take this as an indication of the craftsmanship of the Demiurge. If we were to pursue that line of thinking, then there are, of course, as is commonly known, many roads that lead to Rome. As Engels is so kind as to point out, 300 years before Christ, the Jewish diaspora in Alexandria began a new science called Gimatria, which made use of their letters as symbols for numbers. It's strictly speaking not a new science since Geometry is said to predate arithmetics. The novel aspect, however, is the stress, as Engels says, quote, that secret words were expressed by the figure produced by the addition of the numerical values of the letters contained in them, end of quote. Personally, the Islamicate practice of algebra, or algebra, is more my cup of tea, but according to our 19th century materialist, the devil and or demiurge is in the written word of John Nero, since we find both the older number of the beast 616 
to relate directly to the Latin Nero Caesar, and the latter 666 to that of the Greek Neron Caesar. Thus in his mysterious book John is predicting the return of another Caesar and his coming paradigm of a post-apocalyptic class society. If each phallic rod, staff and ruler, i.e. each by numbers measured line of 666 were to be individually brought to a higher dimension, empowering them by two, we instead of Goliath's cubit length get three not pentagons but hexagons, each with a circumference of 36 and a combined circumference of 108. For our purposes we will think of them as the three foundational building blocks of the hive mind that we are going to study, since as we know, the hexagon is the leanest and economically most sound way to build the honeycombs of that institution in a world of limited amounts of wax. And I'm not shitting on the bees here, since as Marx tells us, quote, what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is this, that the architect raises his structure in imagination before he erects it in reality. At the end of every human labor process we get a result that already existed in the imagination of the laborer at its commencement. Our brooding queen at the center, the imaginer, the one responsible for one of the historically greatest increases of surplus value extraction, who steals all our honey due to his computerizing of the office drones, granted, me included, is of course the avatar of Bill Gates. So, what the fuck has he been up to as of late? I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu, is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now i am become death the destroyer of worlds i suppose we all thought that one way or another Hello and welcome to the return of the repressed. I wasn't sure if I was going to continue with the drug lords of uh, Chiang Kai-shek as I suggested in the last episode or another series about the roots of ecofascism and the agricultural projects of the Third Reich. Eventually I felt we have had enough of Chinese intrigues for a while and we might also need a break from historical state ideologies. Thus I decided, as you have gathered, maybe, from the obscure intro, uh, to open up the files on the big bug. The man with the most bills and G's, I guess. <laughs> BG's, get it? <laughs> Classic! <laughs> Classical! <laughs> 
stupid. Oj, oj, oj. Du... Oh, shit. It's an old investment saying. Buy land, they aren't making it anymore. Which, as far as I can tell, started to appear in property ads at the end of the 60s. Which, uh, you know, gives off serious inherent vice vibes. A good motto, though, I can't lie. But uh, Gates the Third, however, is, as we all know, not your average Wall Street visitor looking to improve a well-balanced portfolio. He's, he's in it. I hate it. Why are they like to use the word portfolio all the time? I, I used to like the word portfolio. It's like, I thought that's what, you know... What artists like Leonardo DiCaprio on the Titanic, like where he has all his graphite sketches, that's a portfolio. Yeah, it's not. Anyway, the portfolio is different and Bill Gates is in it for a long series of different reasons. I mean, is there any major business to be studied where his name doesn't eventually pop up? Just to give you an example where I didn't expect him, in the previous episode, when I was reading about the years of contract, as they are called, and the uh, partially avoided kleptomania frenzy in China during the 80s and the 90s, his father's law firm, Preston Gates and Ellis, popped up a lot as a, quote, major expert on international investment, end of quote, or, quote, transactional solutions, end of quote, and other, you know, white-collar gangster know-how. I don't think they were the first in China, but uh, they seem to be one of the first. Uh, and at the time of this recording, before we get into the main story of uh, Ukraine, just to get a sampling of what Gates' uh, big headlines are, you know, some spontaneous all the worlds, all the world, all the world. What are they called, Marcus? Odeurs. Odeurs. Yeah, almost. Odeurs. Okay, go on. From the last few weeks of uh, news topics, uh, if you don't mind. First thing uh, that popped up when I searched his name was his talk. Um, his recent talk in Australia, I believe. Uh, about new vaccines and the coming of a possible man-made pandemic. He, his words, not mine. There is um, also major hundreds of millions of dollars investment in Heineken. Wise as usual, I guess, since Heineken, though not the biggest brewery, certainly is the most international. Even though they have uh, been there since the 1930s, their current mission, which I'm sure Gates is aware of, is Africa. Um, we do have time to say something about, uh, you know, something short about Heineken, which I'm not a big fan of, neither the beer nor the corporation. Olivier Van Beemen, an investigative journalist who has been researching the Heineken in Africa history, in his book, Heineken in Africa, a multinational unleashed, tells us that though he knew the brand was a symbol of colonial prestige, I mean, he's Dutch after all, 
he was surprised to find out how often they pop up closely tied to the clans and families of the stable autocratic kind, such as Ben Ali in Tunisia, until he was made redundant during the Jasmine Revolution of 2011, though I'm sure they felt they had a good run since the late 80s. Or in the early 1960s, when Heineken was an ardent supporter of a quote-unquote white block of Southern African countries, including Rhodesia, uh, before it became Zimbabwe, South Africa and the two Portuguese colonies Angola and Mozambique. After all, not surprising since beer in Africa is almost 50% more profitable than anywhere else. Some markets, such as Nigeria, are even among the most lucrative in the world. Over there and in many other places, the beer giant is an expert on employing quote-unquote indirect sex workers as quote-unquote beer promotion girls who earn very little and are often harassed, pursued into having sex with customers and run the risk of contracting HIV. Forced to drink an average of six big cans or bottles of beer a day, they sell a brew produced by zero-hour subcontracted tenants on the fields of the malt and hops. In 2007, an internal inquiry, which was leaked, showed that Heineken was using about 15,000 promotion women globally, and according to internal documentation, only one African market was (laughs) problem-free. During an interview, a certain Bralima, uh, the Congolese subsidiary of Heineken, was asked what they get out of this in terms of extra sales, question mark. Quote, I don't think they were that valuable, end of quote, says a former director in DRC. Quote, it was a mess. When things was going on in Cambodia, we also got rules, but they did not change a great deal. For a while, management hired taxis to get the girls home at night, but eventually they decided this was too expensive. Those girls were getting less than the minimum wage, and they were used by Bralima personnel. And by the way, Bralima is, a, is, another, is another beer. Uh, I can't remember what it looks like, but I think it has mountains on it. Very often these uh, were girls with problems, very vulnerable. Given that we paid them so very little, they were virtually forced to go home with a man, end of quote. It's ironic then to learn that back in 2018, the Global Fund, which focuses, as they say, quote, on accelerating the end of AIDS as an epidemic, end of quote, of uh, which Bill Gates was one of the first donors to provide the seed money for the partnership, Suspended cooperation with Heineken because of the scandal, and the Dutch ASN bank, following a third inquiry, removed Heineken from its sustainable investment fund and has halted all other financial involvement with the company until further notice. Well, I guess they have that notice now with a new Heineken partner, because after all, Gates knows that though AIDS is still an epidemic, it's uh, true, just as Freddie Heineken used to say, that, quote, people don't drink beer, they drink marketing, end of quote. Okay, enough disgusting appetizers. Today, I'll have you know, dear listener, that if you are a new listener and I accidentally baited you with the title, something I try to avoid with the overly cryptic, possibly pretentious rubrics, 
This will not be a series of episodes on the man's salad programming days, the computer as such, or his big pharma scheming, all hinted at earlier, though of course they will pop up here and there. As many of you know, the focus is on agriculture, and with the Gateses being the United States' uh, largest private farmland owners, presiding over a quickly rising 242,000 acres nationwide, there should be ample room to commit to such an investigation. 242,000 acres sounds like a lot, but it isn't really. Uh, However, that could soon change, especially considering that seniors own more than 40% of farmland in the US, suggesting an, quote, impending transfer, end of quote, as the American Farmland Trust and Agriculture Conservation Nonprofit noted in a recent report. The trend which has already started is, according to the critique of the National Young Farmers Coalition, one where people who want to, quote, grow for their communities, end of quote, are being priced out in favor of farm managers who answer to distant investors seeking profit above all. This system doesn't just cripple a new generation of farmers, it hurts the rural neighbors and the economies of local towns. Absentee landlords are, quote, not going to the local hardware store and buying products there, end of quote, says Locka Ashwood a rural sociologist at the University of Kentucky. Quote, they're not using a local seed dealer. They're not using a local equipment dealer. Their kids aren't going to the local schools. End of quote. The history of the new absentee landlord class rose to scrutiny in 1977 during a surge in land prices. Back then, Wall Street titan Merrill Lynch and the now-defunct Continental Illinois Bank and Trust announced plans to launch the Agland Trust, a mutual fund to allow big investors to grab hold of farmland. The Agland Trust was fought back but is now on the rise again in a more ecologically and socially ruthless mutated form. This is not only happening in the US, a similar trend is taking place in Europe. It is here then that we will turn to our main topic, Ukraine. With 33 million hectares of arable land, Ukraine has large swaths of the most fertile farmland in the world, the equivalent to one-third of all arable land in the European Union, where misguided privatization and corrupt governance since the early 1990s have concentrated land in the hands of a new oligarchic class. Around 4.3 million hectares are under large-scale agriculture, with the bulk, 3 million hectares, in the hands of just a dozen large agribusiness firms. Most of these firms are registered overseas in tax havens such as Cyprus or Luxembourg, as well as in the USA, the Netherlands and Saudi Arabia. On the top 10 list, only the smallest at the bottom which is a seventh infraction size of the largest, is registered in Ukraine. These landholders generally operate through subsidiaries that run the operations on the ground for intensive monocrop and export-orientated agriculture. 
The state of Ukraine owns over 7 million hectares of land. However, about 5 million have been stolen in recent decades, according to an October 2020 statement by President Zelensky. The interests controlling the massive amount of land, the size of two Crimea, have not been made public by the government. Added to the official amount of land leased, the total amount of land controlled by oligarchs, corrupt individuals and large agribusinesses is thus over 9 million hectares, exceeding 28% of the country's arable land. And so you'll recall that Bill Gates with about 250,000 acres, I guess that would make it, well, just around 100,000 hectares. Here we got 9 million in the hands of the oligarchs. It is believed that the remaining land is used by over 8 million Ukrainian farmers, though comprehensive data on the status of land tenure in Ukraine is lacking. If we nonetheless pose the naive and important question, who owns Ukrainian land? Then we will quickly realize that the structure is complicated for someone who has only studied macroeconomics in their own time, and by that I mean in the most universally concrete way, as to catch sight of the silhouettes of the tomb of the M stroke M beast. Now that's an old Das Kapital joke. Think nothing much of it. But uh, the pattern seems to be embarrassingly reoccurring, despite the image of originality that we often associate with the success of the entrepreneurs. And as a researcher, one picks up a few things after a while. Anyways, for Ukraine I will be using a bunch of reports and articles, especially from the Oakland Institute, which I have been told by other senior parapolitical agricultural researchers to make good use of. Titles will be in the description. The neo-feudal hierarchy of the M stroke M is as follows, and this will take a while. So let's first vibe into it with some Soviet waves. At the bottom, as always, we have laborers of various kinds, slowly being replaced by smart data collecting robots on the ground and forced off their land by various liberalizing development plans. Ukrainian farmers have had to operate with limited amounts of land and financing, and many are now on the verge of poverty. Data shows that these farmers receive virtually no support compared to agribusinesses and oligarchs. The partial credit guarantee fund established by the World Bank to support small farmers is only 5.4 million US dollars, 
a negligible amount compared to the billions channeled to the large agribusinesses. Then we have the aforementioned landholders, the Ukrainian oligarchs and the foreign firms, mostly European and North American. These latifundias are holding companies and generally run their operations through subsidiaries. I use the term latifundia to describe these firms in order to give some historical perspective on the matter. The latifundia of Roman history were great landed estates specializing in agriculture destined for export, grain, olive oil or wine. They were characteristic of Magna Graecia, uh, Greater Greece and Sicily in the south. Uh, Egypt, Northwest Africa and uh, Hispania Betica, that's uh, Andalus, Spain, i.e. the colonies. The latifundia were the closest approximation to industrialized agriculture in antiquity and their economies depended upon slavery uh, and slaves who arrived in such numbers and at such low prices that they replaced the wage laborers and free tenant farmers. For poor peasants the only outcome was often to sell their lands and rejoin the more or less idle common people of Rome, that is the plebs of Rome, that's where plebs come from. So we can see that President Nixon's Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, in famous words to farmers of, you know, get big or get out, is also not as original as we are led to believe. During the modern colonial period, the European monarchies often rewarded services with extensive land grants in their empires. The forced recruitment of local laborers allowed by colonial law made these land grants particularly lucrative for their owners. The organization of a satellite colonial economy by the Spanish based on exporting raw materials from mining and then of an agro-exporting economy based on large specialized estates, i.e. latifundia, and on the marginalization of the peasantry, led Peru, like most of the Latin American countries, into a type of economical and political impasse that persists to this day. Today then, when considering current reasons for the extreme impoverishment of hundreds of millions of peasants, we must note that the increase in productivity and production resulting from the contemporary agricultural revolution and from the Green Revolution have not only provoked a sharp drop in real agricultural prices in the countries concerned, they have also allowed certain countries to unload exportable surpluses at low prices. At such prices... Even the producers who have benefited from the agricultural revolution or the green revolution can win part of the market or simply preserve their position only if they have additional competitive advantage. Such is the case for certain South American, South African, Zimbabwean and now Ukrainian and Russian latifundia-based agro-exporters who are not only well equipped but have access to huge areas of land at low cost and to some of the lowest paid workers in the world. Today, on this type of latifundia, an agricultural worker making less than $1,000 per year can produce more than 10,000 quintals of cereals, that's 1 million kilograms, which reduces the labor cost per kilo of cereal to less than a thousandth of a dollar. <laughs> that's crazy. These systems combined latifundia and minifundia by having wage laborers for the large farms 
provided by a large number of peasant farms, which are too small to fully employ their own familial labor and fulfill their own needs. In a similar manner, in medieval Europe, the forced labor used on the manorial estates was provided by the subjugated serfs. Consequently, the price of a quintal, 100 kilos of exportable cereal from these regions, is less than $10. At this price, a number of American or European farmers would have nil or negative income. Consequently, they would not be able to win a share of the market, nor withstand imports, nor persist in their businesses if they did not live in high-income developed countries, concerned about their food sovereignty and where, as a result, they benefit from important public assistance, such as CSAs, for example. So remember, dear listener, support your local farmer. Don't be cheap. Buy second-hand clothes and phones. Take less drugs and spend your savings on the friends who care about what you and your children eat. Returning to the latifundias of today, not only are most of these registered overseas as mentioned, they also often have economical agents of the next higher level, the shareholders and the investors, who are not Ukrainian. Due to a lack of transparency around such transactions, public information is very limited. The next instance, beyond the shareholders and investors, who controls the largest landholding firms. They also depend on their level of indebtedness, which is very significant for some of the companies, providing creditors with some level of control over the firms and their assets. If a latifundia fails to meet its payment obligations, its creditors become entitled to take possessions of its assets and sell them, essentially transforming them into the owners of the company's assets. Most of these latifundias are substantially indebted to Western financial institutions, both public and private. In particular, the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development, the EBRD, the European Investment Bank, the EIB, and the International Finance Cooperation, the IFC, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank. I have personally been trying to contact them for the longest time for a subsidy, but uh, they don't seem to be interested in local market farming. Together, these institutions have been major lenders to Ukrainian agribusinesses, with close to 1.7 billion US dollars lent to just six of Ukraine's largest landholding firms in recent years. That number is going to increase tenfold as we move closer to the totality and we will highlight some of the conditions of these loans and their shadiness on a whole in a short while. Though for now we will note that it makes Ukraine, from what is known publicly at least, the world's third largest debtor to the International Monetary Fund after Argentina and Egypt, one old and one ancient Latifundia colony. This international financing directly benefits oligarchs, several of whom face accusations of fraud and corrupt dealings, as well as the foreign funds and firms associated as shareholders or creditors. Okay, having reached now the IMF top, we see some silhouettes, some outlines, and though as stated there is a lot of fog, let's get into some names and nasty details which we do know about.
the largest landholder in Ukraine, the biggest latifundia, is Kernel. It is also the largest producer and exporter of sunflower oil. And in terms of sunflower oil, Ukraine is the second in the world after Russia, and by far the largest in Europe, tripling the output of the closest rival, that is France. Kernel controls some 582,062 hectares, and that's more than twice the size of Luxembourg. But, you know, who cares about Luxembourg? <laughs> its owner, Andrei Verevsky, is Ukraine's 16th richest person. Kernel is also the country's biggest private owner of silos and granaries and quote-unquote raid protection of those grain elevators which uh, stock millions of tons of grain. And uh, remember raid protection because that's going to pop up quite a lot later. If we take a look at the shareholders of Kernel and go through them in detail one by one as they will also appear as shareholders in the other top latifundia farms. We see that below Andrei, the largest shareholder is Cascade Investment Fund, i.e. the Cayman Island agribusiness money washer of Bill Gates. After Gates is the US-based private investment firm Copernic Global Investors, LLC, with about $5 billion in assets under management. It also owns shares in MHP, the number three, and Astarta, the number six, on the top ten list uh, of the Latifundias. Copernic was the third largest private investor in Ukraine in 2020. A uh, quote-unquote contrarian fund manager, it is specialized in looking for companies across the world which it views as undervalued in contexts marked by political and economic instability. They are tied to Bill's sister, Christiane, via her Russell Fund, of uh, which she is the chairman. It should say chairwoman, I guess, but then again, bourgeois feminism just needs a room of one's own, right? <laughs> I sometimes wonder if Virginia Woolf's uh, room could be locked from the outside. But uh, those are scary thoughts. I uh, also tried to find out exactly how Christiane was connected, but uh, when I caught myself googling things like what is a multi-strategy income fund, <laughs> I had to pinch my arm and remind myself that just as with the, the made-up Aryan runes of Guido von Liszt, it means whatever you want it to mean. Or rather, it means fuck all. Then we have... Uh, Heptagon Capital, LLP, a London-based private investment firm which manages about 12 billion US dollars in assets. It also owns shares in the MHP and the Astarta Latifundias. Furthermore, along with Copernic Global Investors, LLC, it manages the Copernic Global All-Cap Equity Fund, which has holdings in agriculture, palm oil production, gold and silver mining, uranium production and natural gas. Raw stuff. Another shareholder of oligarch Andres Kernel is Vanguard Group, with an insane 8 trillion in global assets under management, which is much more than the entire hedge fund industry combined. And as such, it is perhaps the best known mech in the new armada of investment funds. 
One of their above the clouds office infiltrators, Victoria Nuland, who is supposed to be Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs at the United States Department of State, <laughs> said in a telephone conversation to the US ambassador to Ukraine, fuck the EU, quote unquote. <laughs> Together with the CIA uh, and the Vanguard, uh, she spent reportedly $5 billion to destabilize Ukraine during the 2014 Maidan revolution, which we will get to in our chronology of recent events later. Her assistant, uh, who is even officially employed by the Vanguard group, was arrested in Germany with billions in counterfeit currency printed by the Vanguard group in 2016. He testified uh, he was arrested in 2016. Not sure when exactly the billions were uh, printed, but, you know, we can guess. <laughs> he testified how the Vanguard Corporation has printed billions of high-quality fake dollars to pay right-wing mercenaries in Syria, Iraq, Ukraine, Libya, etc., as well as paid mercenaries of Greystone and ISIS. He further testified about oil deals connections between Vanguard and ISIS. Vanguard also has close ties to the private paramilitary forces of Academy, formerly known as Blackwater, which owns uh, Greystone, making it a private military and political institution as well. There has been speculation in the last years as to whether Academy was in fact bought by Monsanto, this is really foggy territory, but uh, according to the bi-weekly magazine The Nation and uh, naturalsociety.com, in 2021, so far the only thing confirmed is that, quote, Monsanto and Blackwater are indeed working together to target anti-Monsanto activists and organizations. It was also revealed that Monsanto was willing to pay upwards of 500,000 US dollars in order for Blackwater to join anti-Monsanto activist groups and infiltrate their ranks. End of quote. Uh, if you have the Eric Andre meme in your head, why would an investment fund do this? Although maybe that's not actually completely appropriate since usually it's like the blame is the, the question, right? Well, whatever then know that after all the group was named after Horatio Nelson's flagship vessel at the Battle of the Nile, the HMS Vanguard, a major Latifundia colony conflict of the so-called Napoleonic Wars. Basically, no matter which giant corporation we look at, Vanguard owns the highest shares in it. Apple, Microsoft, Exxon, Johnson & Johnson, GE, Facebook, Amazon, Wells Fargo, JP Morgan Chase, Pfizer, Chevron, Coca-Cola, Home Depot, PepsiCo, as well as being at the very top or the top three of most of the big ag corporations, which we will get to later. Continuing with Colonel, another of the biggest shareholders is Norges Bank Investment Management, which also owns shares in the MHP Latifundia. It manages the Norwegian government pension fund Global, um, also known as the Oil Fund, which is Norway's sovereign wealth fund, with over 1.4 trillion worth of assets. It is the largest single owner in the world's stock market, controlling 1.5% of all shares in the world's listed companies. Many of those shares are in the biggest weapons companies, 
and the former prime minister is since the Maidan revolution of 2014 the general secretary of NATO. As of 2020, it was the fourth largest investor in Ukraine. And I saw like... <laughs> 2022 or if it was 2023 the Norwegian government pension fund or um, Norges bank made a big thing about how how they have dropped some uh, Chinese weapon producer or it wasn't even the direct Chinese weapons producer it was some uh, bigger technology or you know mother company on the grounds that it was uh, selling weapons to uh, places where there are conflicts but of course, they themselves do that as well. I even asked now my, if you remember my gold bug friend from, from earlier, he's not a gold bug, but the one who was catfished. He, uh, he's a programmer. So I asked him if he could set up like an Excel program for me to go through like the hundred biggest uh, weapons corporation. And then I would cross check them against the 300 pages of uh, um, uh, Norges Bank's various investments. And so uh, when he's finished with that, I, I will go through the results in the, in the next episode. Anyways, after Norges Bank, then comes NN Investment Partners holding NV, a Netherlands-based private investment firm, which also owns shares in the Astarta Latifundia. In April 2022, it was acquired by investment banking firm Goldman Sachs Group, which I guess is slightly more renowned and was combined with Goldman Sachs asset management. Over the years, Goldman Sachs has been involved in a string of controversies, including playing a central role in the 2008 financial crisis and partaking in the multi-billion 1MDB bribery scandal, a money laundering conspiracy in which the Malaysian sovereign wealth fund was systematically embezzled with assets diverted globally by the perpetrators of the scheme. It had a global scope, implicated institutions and individuals in politics, banking and entertainment and sparked criminal investigations across a number of nations and declared by the United States Department of Justice as the, quote, largest kleptocracy case to date, end of quote. That is in 2016. Um, it's a big story, but the funniest tidbit is that some of the embezzlement was used to finance the American film company Red Granite Pictures and its production of The Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> and the 1MDB could be read as IMDB, I guess. <laughs> well, well. All right, that does it for shareholders. If we continue to the second biggest latifundia and the most mysterious... I guess, is uh, UKR land farming with 403,370 hectares. Founded by oligarch Oleg Bakhmatyuk, who was the 28th richest person in Ukraine in 2016 and has since lost much of his land and assets uh, with Russia's annexation of Crimea. It specializes in grain, egg, milk and meat production. Unlike the others, uh, it is completely owned by Oleg, uh, at least officially. UKR Land Farming owns two of Europe's largest poultry farms, as well as two of its largest grain storage facilities. It is also the owner of Avangardco IPL, Europe's largest egg producer. As of 2020, it was estimated that UKR Land Farming's debt burden stood at 
1.65 billion US dollars, of which 1.25 billion was owed to foreign creditors, including the US-based Gramercy Fund Management LLC, the Export-Import Bank of the United States, Pala Assets Limited and Denmark's Export Credit Agency. Other creditors included Deutsche Bank, Sperbank of Russia and Canada's Export-Import Agency. Which is a weird group of dinner guests and one of the peculiar situations mentioned above of indebtment to control in secret. This was evidenced by a recent debt restructuring involving these export-import agencies of the US, Canada and Denmark, among others, and uh, led to important organizational changes, including layoffs of thousands of workers. And I think it's so odd, you know, like when it's import and export agencies of other nations, this crisis is, you know, as systematic of a crisis as it gets. These aren't opportunistic private corporations anymore. It's basically just how our democratic societies are supposed to function. As expected, this is also where we see the most shady business surfacing. Oleg, the oligarch, (laughs) has been implicated in a corruption scandal involving two insolvent banks he owned and is issued by a US investor accusing him of siphoning 1 billion US dollars out of the company. But this is of course nothing new or unique. Latifundia number 3, MHP, which is the most invested in by the European institutions and the World Bank since 2008, also took some flack recently. Yuri Kosyuk, the founder of MHP, had been involved in a string of controversies in connection with his agribusinesses. One of the largest exporters of chicken products to the European Union, MHP has also been shown to use uh, letterbox, company, letterbox companies in tax havens like Luxembourg and Cyprus to avoid paying taxes in Ukraine, a common strategy employed by Ukrainian agribusinesses. MHP has also been accused of corruption, exacerbating air and water pollution, violating community rights and perpetuating human rights abuses such as the beating of activists and public smear campaigns. Now these paramilitary raid protection forces of these silo-owning corporations might, in my opinion, be a good place to look for all the missing weapons which an anonymous whistleblower from the US Department of Defense spoke about recently. This opinion of mine doesn't seem to be shared by the European journalists who, rather than speaking about Latifundia Gladio groups, who are finally in a real stay-behind position, prefer to take the opportunity to focus on gangs and the subsequent need for police in their own countries. The black hole and the chances of tracking being zero, quote-unquote, according to the Deep Throat Leaker, might explain why in preparation for this episode I saw estimations of everything from a quarter to three quarters of weapons going missing on their way to the defensive troops of Ukraine. In 2018, MHP was also at the heart of another scandal in the EU when it was revealed that MHP was exploiting a loophole in the EU import quotas for chicken meat, allowing it to bypass the quotas altogether. 
In 2019, Ukraine's president, Zelensky, asked anti-corruption agencies to investigate the 2.5 billion in subsidies MHP received from the state budget in 2017-18, to despite reporting a net profit of 230 US million dollars in 2017. All right, I think that does it in terms of an introduction to the contemporary latifundia structure. In conclusion then, before we move on to a timeline leading up to the war, in recent years, Western countries and institutions have provided massive military and economic assistance to Ukraine, which became the top recipient of US foreign aid, marking the first time since the Marshall Plan that a European country holds this top spot. As of December 2022, less than one year into the war, the US has allocated over 113 billion US dollars to Ukraine, including 65 billion dollars of military aid, which is more than the entire budget of the State Department and US aid globally, which is at 58 billion dollars. Western aid has been conditioned to a drastic structural adjustment program, which includes austerity measures cuts in social safety nets, and the privatization of key sectors of the economy. A central condition has been the creation of a land market, put into law in 2020 under President Zelensky. Despite opposition from a majority of Ukrainians fearing that it will exacerbate corruption in the agricultural sector and reinforce its control by powerful interests. The Oakland report validates this concern, showing that the creation of a land market will likely further increase the amount of agricultural land in the hands of oligarchs and latifundias. The latter have already started expanding their access to land. Colonel has announced plans to increase its land bank to 700,000 hectares, up from 506 hectares in 2021. Similarly, MHP, which currently controls 360,000 hectares of land, seeks to expand its holdings to 550,000 hectares. MHP is also reportedly circumventing restrictions on the purchase of land by asking its employees to buy land and lease it to the company. Additionally, by supporting large agribusinesses, International financial institutions are in effect subsidizing the concentration of land and an industrial model of agriculture based on the intensive use of synthetic inputs, fossil fuels and large-scale monocropping, long shown to be environmentally and socially destructive. Now, despite all this scheming that we have just witnessed, by contrast, small-scale farmers in Ukraine demonstrate resilience and a great potential for leading the expansion of a different production model based on agroecology, environmental sustainability and the production of healthy food. It is Ukraine's small and medium-sized farmers who guarantee the country's food security, whereas the latifundias of Big Ag are today in Ukraine just as they were thousands of years ago in the Roman Empire, simply geared towards export.
to create uh, a timeline then, as promised. I will highlight some events pointed out by authors like Joyce Nelson, who used to write for Counterpunch before her passion for agricultural parapolitics passed away last year. Uh, there will be some Monsanto and Gates stuff here and there, but that's mainly for the next episode and the decoding of glyphosate. I also don't want to come off as annoyed at Italian Catholic and talk only about the NWO Zog machine of Bill and Soros and their puppets, because uh, it, it's never that easy. <laughs> I remember once I stayed with a guy in his late 40s in Milano on couch surfing. Uh, this guy had his heart in the right place. He wasn't an anti-Semite or anything. Uh, but le less than an hour after my arrival, standing literally with nothing but a towel around my waist, he takes me out on his small French balcony, overlooking a pretty nice square, to have a spliff and an espresso, uh, which he prepared while I was in the shower, though I could hear him playing piano the whole time, so how he managed is still a mystery to me. He sits down, lights up, exhales, looks at me and says, I can tell you're a person in the know, but Ragazzo, did you know that the, the Giza pyramid is an amplifier? <laughs> an amplifier for what? I asked. <laughs> Eco fatto. <laughs> That's it. An amplifier for what? <laughs> he asked me back and passed me what he was holding. Now, <laughs> obviously, we need to start somewhere. So let's make use of the fall of the Soviet Union as a classical milestone for the new order of business. Before the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, the good old days, all land was the property of the state, with farmers working on state and collective farms. Fuck me, doesn't that sound less complicated than all the shit we just went through? Oh shit. In the 1990s, guided and supported by the IMF and other international institutions, the government started privatizing much of Ukraine's farmland, which resulted in the growing concentration of land in the hands of a new oligarchic class, which we know all about by now. To stop this process, however, the government instituted a moratorium in 2001, which halted further privatization and prevented almost all transfer of private land. 96% of agricultural land in Ukraine, or about 40 million hectares, was subjected to the moratorium. While the moratorium prevented further purchases of land, farmland could still be leased. Many small landowners leased their land to both domestic and foreign corporations. Although the moratorium was meant to be temporary, it was extended multiple times until it was lifted in July 2021 under the pressure of international financial institutions. US-based private equity firm NCH Capital was founded in 1993 by George Rohr and Morris Tabachinik, two US businessmen heavily involved in the privatization frenzy that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. As analyzed in a report by Grain, they have established a series of funds to lease or buy farms in the region at a low price with the aim to aggregate them into large-scale grain and soybean farms, successfully amassing a land bank of 700,000 hectares in Ukraine and Russia from shell-shocked poor peasants. After securing investments from prominent Western financial institutions, 
It channeled these funds through offshore companies located in tax havens like Cyprus and Cayman Islands and into joint ventures with local firms to take over the land. The firm faces accusations of unlawful land acquisition, tax evasion and illicit financial activity. Nothing new under the sun. (laughs) Though NCH Capital is one of the earliest, they are not alone. In August 2011, WikiLeaks released U.S. diplomatic cables showing that the U.S. Department has been lobbying worldwide for Monsanto and other biotechnology corporations like DuPont, Syngenta, Bayer and Dow. The U.S. nonprofit Food and Water Watch combed through the five years of these cables, which begin in 2005, stretching up to 2009. And eventually they released its report entitled Biotech Ambassadors, how the U.S. State Department promotes the seed industry's global agenda in 2013. The report showed that the U.S. Department has, quote, lobbied foreign governments to adopt pro-agricultural biotechnology policies and laws, operated a rigorous public relations campaign to improve the image of biotechnology and challenged common sense biotechnology safeguards and rules even including opposing laws requiring the labeling of genetically engineered foods. End of quote. That 2004-2009 leaked uh, cable period in question begins with the presidential election of two major candidates, the pro-Russian Yanukovych and the other the pro-EU Yushchenko. It's so funny, I think. You can uh, definitely tell from their official portraits which one is which. One has this stern, darkly humorous, bureaucratic demonor who could either be an ambassador himself or, you know, the one who personally overlooks your intense interrogation for for not paying uh, parking tickets as an MP. The other has this, uh, you know, slick, taking care of business look with a fading Saint-Tropez tan. In the first election, Yanukovych, the pro-Russian, won, but it was ruled by the Supreme Court that this election was a fraud, which unleashed a series of protests known as the Orange Revolution, heavily orchestrated by the EU and the West, as one would suspect. Eventually, this brought Yushchenko, the pro-EU candidate, to power. Interestingly enough, though, the 2004 electoral violations was never properly investigated, Nobody was punished, maybe because, as many analysts claimed, both sides resorted to rigging. And I guess it's worth noting that the next election, which everyone held as being so fair and square due to the impact of the orange media sensation, Yanukovych won again with basically the same number and the same pro-Russian voting areas as before, and this time he was allowed to enter office. Maybe, you know, the most important EU paperwork had already been irreversibly taken care of by Yushchenko in the last five years. My favorite takeaway from the Orange Revolution, however, uh, which I don't know where to place exactly, but which hangs like a signifier over this whole investigation, should my assumptions about the relationship between the war and Big Ag be confirmed. It is that during the election, the pro-NATO, pro-EU liberal presidential candidate Yushchenko was poisoned with nothing other than the notorious dioxin TCDD, you know, the famous contaminant of the DuPont Monsanto et al. weed killer, Agent Orange. (laughs) 
<laughs> Probably nothing. But, you know, maybe somebody was sending the presidential EU sellout a message of what was going to happen to Ukrainian farmland. Or just a glitch in the citadel of mirrors. Uh, if you want to learn more about TCDD and the problems of Agent Orange used today, I highly recommend the very informative documentary The People vs. Agent Orange from 2020 which did an excellent job of debunking the common assumption that Operation Ranch Hand was only used during the Vietnam War, criticized and then shelved due to its adverse harmful effects. Nothing has been shelved. <laughs> the, biological, the biological peace version of Operation Ranch Hand is still going on all over the world, even in the US. In late 2013, after becoming president in 2009, Yanukovych rejected a European Union association agreement tied to a 17 billion IMF loan, the terms of which are only now being revealed. Instead, Yanukovych chose a Russian aid package uh, worth 15 billion plus a discount on Russian natural gas. Again, both they are US dollars, right? His decision was a major factor in the ensuing deadly protests that led to his ouster from the office in the 2014 Maidan revolution and the ongoing crisis. On July 28, 2014, another Oakland Institute report revealed that the World Bank and the IMF, under terms of their 17 billion loan to Ukraine, would open that country to genetically modified crops and genetically modified organisms in agriculture. This would be a major constituent of their major move and push to lift the moratorium on the sale of agricultural land and the creation of a land market. And I just want to point out that I don't trust pro-Russian politicians in Ukraine simply on the merit of being pro-Russia or anti-EU. However, in terms of GMOs, or rather the crucial shift away from petro-agriculture and its biocides, which is our focus. Putin seems to be coming out on top, since already back in 2003 he made the earliest announcements of a new organic food security doctrine, which in 2018 was announced to be implemented in 2020, which it was in January 21 of that year. I know that it's too early to say anything definite about this doctrine's historical merits, and I am well aware that organic food is also a capitalist business, and that there are also plenty of Russian oligarchs with latifundia ambitions. I have no illusions about this being a new example of the permaculture Maoism which I dreamt about in the last episode. However, I have a hunch that the project is damning to the big ag enough to start a land-grabbing war over it as misguided and ridiculous as that might sound. I know it's not the most popular theory in the commercial media as of yet, but let's see, dear listener, if you will eventually share this suspicion. With the installation of a pro-EU government following the Maidan revolution in 2014, the World Bank, the IMF and the ERBD have been laying the groundwork for a large-scale privatization in Ukraine through a massive structural adjustment program. In 2014, Ukraine had to commit to a set of austerity measures in return for the 17 billion bailout from the IMF 
as well as an additional 3.5 billion aid package from the World Bank. These measures included slashing public pensions and wages, reforming the public provision of water and energy, the privatization of banks and changing the country's VAT system. In 2015, NCH Capital, the OG founders from before, and CEO George Rohr from was part of the high-level meetings involving the Ukrainian president and the US Secretary of Commerce that led Ukraine to agree on the IMF reform plan as a condition for another two <laughs> one billion loan guarantees from the US government. Despite its controversial history, NCH Capital, the fifth largest landholder in Ukraine, has succeeded in attracting investments from prominent US pension funds, university endowments, and private foundations, as well as international financial institutions. Some of them being General Electric Pension Trust, Dow Chemical Company Pension Fund and Lockheed Martin Pension Plan. According to the Oakland Institute, quote, whereas Ukraine does not allow the use of genetically modified organisms in agriculture, uh, Article 404 <laughs> and, you know, the missing page, if you like, of this initially rejected EU agreement, which relates to agriculture, includes a clause that has generally gone unnoticed. It indicates, among other things, that both parties will cooperate to extend the use of biotechnologies. Here, Joyce Nelson suggests we take a look at the biotech ambassadors of the US-Ukraine Business Council to see what that might mean in practice. And here again, we find the whole Motley crew of this episode and previous episodes, plus some new names, faces and non-faces. Its 16-member executive committee is packed with US agribusiness companies, including representatives from Monsanto, John Deere, DuPont, Pioneer, Eli Lilly and Cargill. The Council's 20 senior advisors includes James Green, former head of NATO's liaison office in Ukraine, Ariel Cohen, senior research fellow for the Heritage Foundation, you know, that uh, old Christian right-wing think tank that has uh, pushed for every American war since the end of the 70s, Leonid Kozashenko, once a state farm engineer turned Christian conservative and now president of the market-based Ukrainian Agrarian Confederation, which, uh, you know, that's according to his profile on latifundist.com. <laughs> you thought I was joking, right? You thought, oh, Marcus, why are you always bringing things back to history? They, they know what they're doing. <laughs> they... <laughs> Six former U.S. ambassadors to Ukraine and the former ambassador of Ukraine to the U.S., Ole Shamsur. I will return to him in particular at a later point. CEO of the council is a man named Morgan Williams, uh, who appears almost nowhere in the media, as far as I can tell, when I try to do my research on him, but uh, who at least I know also runs a private equity firm called Sigma Blazer. Such a stupid name. <laughs> It's really like, what? With HQs in Texas and throughout Eastern Europe, uh, which according to themselves, uh, specializes in control investments in turnaround and distressed situations. You know, which I once again read as the first vultures on the site after war and other economic destabilization operations have run their course. 
this term then biotechnologies uh, is quickly becoming i would say a crypto eco-fascist signifier for our usual suspects on how they will achieve their aims i have an upcoming episode as i told you about the historical roots of eco-fascism so until then when all will be revealed i will not use the term again for posture there is no doubt, however, that this uh, provision meets the expectations of the agribusiness industry and their US-Ukraine business council. As observed by Michael Cox, uh, research director at the investment bank Piper Sandler, quote, Ukraine and to a wider extent Eastern Europe are among the most promising growth markets for farm equipment giant John Deere, as well as seed producers Monsanto and DuPont, end of quote. If we were to zoom in on these uh, three corporations one by one before we continue with the timeline, we will see that Bill Gates is the largest holder of Deer stock. Uh, furthermore, right after everybody's new favorite comedian Zelensky became head of state in May 2019, by late August Gates brought even more after holding steady for a couple of years and increased his investment in the maker of smart data collecting tractors trucks and other heavy equipment. Then as the war started heating up on May 18, 2021, he transferred some 850 million of those dear shares to Melinda and by doing so, according to himself in the securities filing, dropped down below the previous 10% stake that would have triggered a reporting requirement. As I understand this, uh, now his name will appear less frequently on the papers of the ag giant when the GMO data from Ukraine and the European grain market starts pouring in. I wonder why he did that, but uh, unfortunately such speculation is absent from the Wall Street Journal, Barron's and the other business insider publications that have reported on the deals. Furthermore, Gates' relationship with Monsanto is well known and much of the coming episode on glyphosate will discuss that history. But I also found out that back in 2016, through a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, DuPont will apply its world-class capabilities in the areas of protein engineering, pathway engineering and cell factories to the field of protein drugs. Now. Remind me, wasn't there some talk recently in the last two, three years or so about spike protein? <laughs> or am I having uh, auditory hallucinations again? Probably nothing. As listeners will know, I avoid uh, discussions on COVID like the plague. <laughs> uh, but if I was going to say something before we return to the timeline and the walk in the park topic of war in Europe, I would be, it would be that even though my paranoia is not on the level of pandemic as of yet, I am of the opinion that the specific nature of the vaccination rollout in particular was primarily to milk what remains of the welfare states and its tax paying subjects while also functioning as a PR campaign and shock normalization for biotechnological genetic modification. A global interpolation campaign mostly associated with seed, not so much vaccines, uh, you know, which traditionally since the 90s and whenever Dolly was around, <laughs> for those who remember, have encountered a lot more friction than its agents ever anticipated. 
at least in places where people and their bureaucracy still have time to reflect on such issues. Returning then to Ukraine uh, during the lead up to the invasion, intervention, whatever you like, in May 2013, which is before or just before the Maidan revolution, Monsanto announced plans to invest 140 million in a non-GMO corn seed plant in Ukraine, with Monsanto Ukraine spokesman Vitaly Feshuk confirming that, quote, we will be working with conventional seeds only because in Ukraine only conventional seeds are allowed for production and importation, end of quote. But by November 2013, when the sudden wave of large pro-EU protests erupted in response to Yanukovych's sudden decision not to sign the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement, and as we know instead choosing closer ties to Russia and the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, then just as sudden six large Ukrainian agriculture associations had prepared draft amendments to the GMO law pushing for, quote, creating, testing, transportation and use of GMOs regarding the legalization of GM seeds. A few months later, Yanukovych had been toppled, together with his Russian Organic Food Security Doctrine Alignment. The president of the Ukrainian Grain Association, Volodymyr Klimenko, told a November 5 press conference in Kiev that, quote, we could mull over this issue for a long time, but we, jointly with the agricultural associations, have signed two letters to change the law on biosecurity, in which we proposed the legalization of the use of GM seeds, which has been tested in the United States for a long time for our producers. End of quote. Uh, that's actually untrue, since the GM seeds and GMOs have never undergone independent long-term testing in the U.S., a few weeks later, on December 13, 2013, Monsanto's uh, Jesus Madrazo, vice president of corporate engagement, told the U.S.-Ukraine conference in Washington, D.C. that the company sees, quote, the importance of creating a favorable environment in Ukraine that encourages innovation and fosters the continued development of agriculture. Ukraine has the opportunity to further develop the potential of conventional crops, which is where we are currently concentrating our efforts. We also hope that at some point biotechnology is a tool that will be available to Ukrainian farmers in the future. End of quote. When is the future, we might ask? Well, <laughs> a few days in the past, it would seem, since before Madrasso's remarks in Washington, Monsanto Ukraine had launched its social development program for the country called Grain Basket of the Future. It provides grants to rural villagers so they can, in Monsanto's words, start feeling that they can improve their situation themselves as opposed to waiting for a handout. Oh man, that sounds noble. I sure hope no crisis were to develop that would also demand the GMO handouts while the lands of these rural villagers are being quote-unquote protected or quote-unquote modernized and other drastic measures for drastic times blah 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 blah. Strange also that on the looks of it the meddling of global big ag and the EU-US lobbies seem to have drastically increased the needs for handouts. Between 2013 and 2019, 
after the Maidan Revolution made possible the Agricultural Association's draft amendments, the term of the EU Association Agreement and the IMF World Bank loans. The average monthly wage dropped with the equivalent of 80 US dollars. This drop was coupled with a high rate of inflation, which peaked at 43% in 2015. During that time, the price of gas, which is the main source of heat, hot water and cooking fuel for most Ukrainians, increased 12-fold. <laughs> That's heavy. I mean, imagine if you could go on living the way you do, if that happens to petrol. Pension reforms introduced in 2017 have similarly played a part in the impoverishment of the population. Around 80% of single pensioners in Ukraine live below the official poverty line while 65% receive a pension below $82 per month. In 2021, Ukraine was the poorest country in Europe. In 2014, the country's poverty rate stood at 28.6%. By 2016, it had doubled, reaching a staggering 58.6%. While it has declined slightly in recent years, it remained high at 41.3% in 2019. And according to Statista.com, between 1987 and 1988, definitely not remembered as the heydays of the USSR, just 3% of the population in Central and Eastern Europe lived below the poverty line. I serve the Soviet Union. Thank you. 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 I serve the Soviet Union. I'm not going to say that the war is an intervention rather than an invasion just yet, but I can see how it would not be hard for Putin to convince his people that this is the case. In 2017, the IMF called for, quote, a major acceleration in critical structural reforms, end of quote. You know, like they once did in Rwanda and there see previous episode if you are a newcomer pushing for, quote, agricultural land reform to lift the moratorium on land sales, end of quote, among other privatization measures. To this end, it established a working group with relevant ministers and the World Bank to draft reg- legislations opening up Ukraine's land market and allowing the sale of land. With an estimated 64% of the population against the creation of a land market, The IMF launched a public information campaign in 2017 in an attempt to gain support for the reform. In 2019 and 2020, large protests and rallies erupted against changes to laws governing the sale of farmland. Much of this opposition stems from the fact that many Ukrainians believe the land reform law will exacerbate corruption in the agricultural sphere, as well as reinforce its control by powerful interests. For many citizens, the most serious concern with the law is the potential for oligarchs and foreign interests to obtain ownership of land by exploiting the country's impotent judicial and regulatory systems. And is it not interesting that despite these protests, depending on what demographic and geographic parameters one makes use of, was as big or even more far-stretching than the Orange Revolution and the Maidan Revolution? There are no wiki sites about them, no thousands of hits on the search engines, no documentaries on the streaming services, not widely reported on in the media, 
It has received no analytical pamphlets by the likes of USAID, linking it to the success of their billion dollars democracy promoting packages and strategies. There is nothing. Despite this widespread opposition, on March 31, 2020, Ukraine passed a law legalizing the sale of farmland and lifting the country's 19-year moratorium on land transactions. Ending the moratorium was part of a series of policy reforms that the IMF conditioned another <laughs> 8 billion loan package upon. <laughs> I mean, they will never stop. Fuck! They just keep grinding, 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 grinding until there's like, you. I would go insane, man. Like just hearing, having to hear about this shit all the time. Fuck! Faced with a deep economic crisis, an ongoing civil war and the rapidly escalating COVID-19 pandemic, Ukraine risked plunging into default without the loan package. The timing of the bill's passage coincided with the mandatory COVID-19 stay-at-home orders in place across the country, effectively quelling any further protests. Starting in July 2021, the law makes it possible for individual Ukrainian citizens to purchase up to 100 hectares. The second stage begins in January 2024 and will raise the limit to 10,000 hectares and permit sale to legal entities. Since the first year of the land market's opening after July 2021, 111,307 land deals have been signed, covering 262,679 hectares of land. As of August 2022, the largest agribusinesses operating in the country controlled approximately 4.4 million hectares of land. Once the legal limitations are lifted in 2024 and legal entities can purchase up to 10,000 hectares, these agribusinesses will be able to further expand their access to land. And this, quite definitely in my opinion, is what will decide the future of the ongoing war. Not the millions or billions spent on more weapons. It's simply this. This is the incentive. If you don't believe me, just listen to the president of the European Investment Bank, Werner Hoyer, and how it does not even occur to him that perhaps during a war of malnutrition and starvation, some of the wheat which he speaks of, maybe it should be used, subsidized and rationed out to the population who grew it. Ukraine is the wheat basket of, of Europe, and it's sitting on 8 billion euros worth of wheat right now from last year's harvest. They cannot export it. They have no access to the sea. This is one of the key, key issues that we must address because they are industrious people. They are sowing like crazy right now, and they will expect probably a good harvest, maybe 70% of last year's harvest in a couple of months, and then what to do with it. That was bleak, to say the least. And I don't want to be a doomer, so I will quickly, shortly extend the more hopeful notes about the resilience of the small-scale Ukrainian farmers from the introduction. Since in contrast, as recent research shows, small-scale farmers in Ukraine are leading the expansion of a different model based on agroecology, environmental sustainability 
and the production of healthy food. Small to medium-sized farmers also play a crucial role in guaranteeing the country's food security. They produce over 50% of the country's agricultural output, including 99% of potatoes, 89% of vegetables, 78% of milk, and 74% of beef. Small farmers are calling for a post-war agrarian policy centered on farmers, environmental responsibility, and economic justice. They demand the establishment of a political platform for the inclusion of small farmers into the plan for the reconstruction of Ukraine, recognizing them as equal players in the country's food system. They also ask for the adoption of the law, quote, on the agrarian system, end of quote, recognizing peasant farms and farming households as the basis of Ukraine's agrarian system. The creation of a national institution protecting the right of peasants, family farming and the rural environment. And the formation of state programs that establish regional networks of local agricultural markets, generating short supply chains and incentivize food self-sufficiency through the production of domestic seeds. In conclusion then, before we move on to the last theoretical analysis of this conflict, and try to figure out how we yet again were sold another war. It seems that though it has been more than a hundred years since Kropotkin first published that series of articles in Le Revolté, the conquest of bread, dear listener, is still the key issue in this, our contemporary space age. Внимание! Говорит и показывает Москва. Работают все центральные каналы телевидения. Смотрите и слушайте Москву. Москва, говорит Москва, работают все радиостанции Советского Союза. Передаем сообщение ТАСС о первом в мире полете человека в космическое пространство. Now, considering those percentages, one cannot help to think that Big Ag is fucking useless at feeding people. 
considering how much money and how much land they have. If it is not food, what are they doing over there? For some reason, when preparing for this episode, my mind drifted off into some corner of the storehouse consciousness it has not visited in a very long time. Namely, some of the theories of Rosa Luxemburg. So, rather than this becoming just a spreadsheet of stupid names of stupid corporations, let's allow some room for some theory so that we can get a picture over what's going on here beyond my simple animism about the metaphors of the vultures. Everybody who is more or less awake is looking for the pyramid, even Rosa. I remember one particular insight describing ratios, the sacred geometry of the hive mind, if you like, that stood out to me when I read her for the first time. At that time I was living on an island with my old grandmother. It was raining outside, a grey, dark, cold winter night. As I went out to look, across the unruly and slightly upset ocean that is actually the eastern sea. I imagine in the distance the blurry contours of a pyramid and then golden lines of a blueprint which appeared spontaneously over the silhouette. The captivating image etched itself like a wax insignia in my brain. Here was the letter that always reaches its destination finally arriving through time and space from that lovely Jewish lady writing in the era of the invention of synthetic fertilizers. If you want to believe this is about the bloodlines of the Illuminati, you are free to do so. But know that doing so would be a social magical defense mechanism as to not allow your mind to elevate to the highest planes of supreme value form reproduction. We are talking about that place of observation which is identical with the gaze of the big other. The psychotic instance, where one finds the organless bodies, those that radiate instead of contemplate, aggregate instead of communicate, those that interpolate and dominate, where we confront the schizoid nightmares of Deleuze and Guattari, quote, it is at work everywhere, functioning smoothly at times, at other times in fits and starts. It breathes, it heats, it eats, it shits and fucks. What a mistake to have ever said the id. Everywhere it is machines, real ones, not figurative ones. Machines driving other machines, machines being driven by other machines, with all the necessary couplings and connections. An organ machine is plugged into an energy source machine. The one produces a flow that the other interrupts. The breast is a machine that produces milk, and the mouth a machine coupled to it. The mouth of the anorexic wavers between several functions. Its possessor is uncertain as to whether it is an eating machine, an anal machine, a talking machine, or a breathing machine. There is no such thing as either man or nature now, only a process that produces the one within the other and couples the machine together. Producing machines, desiring machines everywhere, schizophrenic machines, all of species life. The self and the non-self, outside and inside, no longer have any meaning whatsoever. End of quote. 
I would say this is not the way we are. To me that would be defeatist. But the big machine causes within us a sickness to see us as it sees us. Shortcutting our recognition in favor of a foreign ontology. It changes the way we speak so as to think that a concern means conglomeration. A trust means conglomeration. A depression, a crisis, means conglomeration. A fund which once meant the ground. A stock which once meant the trees. A share which once meant to care for one another. And axie, which once simply meant to do, to be. The gesture of the uniquely speaking animal who fell to new. Now all means conglomeration. These circuits have funded both and every side of every conflict since Napoleon's siege of Toulon. And who knows how long before. Selfish giant golems that slump awkwardly across our globe. Vacant, brain dead, too large to control, too far reaching to tame. Unhinged despite the notes that are plastered onto their misshapen heads to indicate management and administration. The illusion of belonging to their creator. The insanity of Dr. Frankenstein. The pride of the oh-so-temporary names that fill the list of the last rooms of Prince Prospero's abbey. In the accumulation of capital, a contribution to an economic explanation of imperialism, De Rosa, expanding on Marx in an unorthodox orthodox way, unlike many others, points out that the ratio of variable and constant capital is 1 colon 4. If there is something to this, also for an expanded view of the system as a whole, I thought all those years ago, then we would find Department 1, the producers of production commodities, the heavy industry of heavy industry, let's say, to make up about 40 of the biggest corporations in the world, and Department 2, the producers of consumption commodities, to make up about 10 of the world's largest corporations i.e. humans get one-fifth, the apparatus gets four-fifths. It just so happens that this mathematical insight regarding the golden geometrical cut of the 50 blocks of the top pyramid yon holds true a hundred years later. Ten of the world's largest corporations are retailers. Forty of the blocks are raw material such as oil, gas, electricity, steel, means of exchange, etc. We could argue about whether electronics and automobiles are means of production or recreational provisions or whether healthcare insofar that they are off the top is disguised finance and insurance. That is more sophisticated means of exchange rather than pills and other medicines. But let's instead maintain the beauty of the formula. What it means, I think, is that most of us are most familiar with the logos of retail that feed our holdings and homes, being household names after all. But this knowledge nonetheless provides a limited view of the structure. It's not necessarily that the rest is hidden, though it is also in a way, since again most of us no longer live with invisible reach of the heavy industry or the latifundias. My point is rather that our emotional investment in the aesthetics of the mystification of debit and credit, or let's say, 
the well-crafted public relationship to the satisfaction of our desires does not correlate with the economical hierarchy, the accumulation of capital, or imperialism. Now, this is perhaps no sound way to read Rosa Luxemburg, but you know that my brain, dear listener, is a faulty one. Helen Scott, much more versed in her theories, gives a summary in her own foreword to a collection of uh, Rosa's essential texts. Quote, The study was provoked by her identification of a problem in volume 2 of Marx's Capital regarding capitalist reproduction. Luxembourg argues that Marx's diagram of enlarged reproduction cannot explain the actual and historical process of accumulation. And his model assumes universal and exclusive domination of the capitalist mode of production. Although in reality, capitalism depends in all respects on non-capitalist strata and social organizations existing side by side with it. This was the essence of her polemic that capitalism needs to constantly expand into non-capitalist areas in order to access new supply sources, markets for surplus value, and reservoirs of labor. This compulsion leads to imperialism, the competition between capitalist powers for control over the rest of the world, which in this period predominantly took the colonial form. On Wikipedia, we will find that this theory of imperialism, Rosa's theory, was harshly criticized by both Marxist and non-Marxist economists, on the grounds that her logic was circular in proclaiming the impossibility of realizing profits in a closed capitalist system. I would rather say that many of the critics are sad male economists, hurt by the fact that, as Georg Lukács sort of put it, a woman was allowed to enter the kingdom and become one with Marx's spirit, while they remained unengaged spectators, not ready to truly gaze at the circle in question. You see, it is not the logic of Rosa, but the samsaric logic of the value form which is circular. And Rosa's words are those of a caring mother, telling us when we are sick that no matter the horrors, this will not last forever. How could it? And though we should love our symptoms as our own, don't get too angry at yourself when you start to feel better. Wars, overproduction, depressions and financial crises are not unique or extraordinary anomalies insofar that a real event will create a new world, break free. They are recurring inherent glitches to the repetition as much as a good deal is. And uh, as Rosa herself put it, the true vulgarity is to instead be fooled by the common, linear, chronological statistics of peaks and depths that we are so familiar with. The charts that never close in on themselves to break down, but continue everlasting from left to right, reproducing the elementary illusion that we are going somewhere. I used to think of the analogy of the game Snake on Nokia... 3310 or if it was 3330 when the snake disappears on the side only to appear on the opposite but only if capitalism has not already encircled all the outer corners as to quickly cover as much ground as possible preparing its own tomb as it were 
Today the whole world has become a closed capitalist system. There is no more uncharted territory that can be conquered in a classical sense. But in the unclassical sense, we do have Ukrainian laws which bars the latifundia from growing GMO crops and to expand their land. Banned from what has for a long, very long time been now, as we know, considered the breadbasket of Europe. So far, we might have only managed to show that this fact, the fact of the breadbasket, is a well-observed opportunity for the opportunist. It will be harder to prove that they directly instigated a war to seize that opportunity. However, the Wikileaks documents from before further shows that the obscure Williams of the Ukraine-US Business Council finds himself at the nexus of Big Ang's alliance with foreign policy, which involves, quote, various agencies of the US government, members of Congress, congressional committees, the embassy of Ukraine to the US, international financial institutions, think tanks and other organizations on US-Ukraine business, trade, investment and economic development issues. The same will undoubtedly hold true for Europe and a few other places. But to specify here beyond the heavy industry, trying to focus instead on how the image of the necessity of war once again had its consent manufactured. We already mentioned the former ambassador of Ukraine to the US, Ole Shamshur. Shamshur is a senior advisor to PBN of Hill Knowlton Strategies, which in turn is a subsidiary of the Gargantuan London-based WPP Group, the world's largest advertising company, which owns some dozen big PR firms, including Burson Marsteller, a long-time Monsanto advisor. Some of you who are older might now already know where I'm going with Shamshur, but I think for this to not become another long list of names, this time of PR corporations, we need to put forward some heavy theory once again, and since I already made use of a famous communist, let's pick instead another celebrity on the other side of the political spectrum. How about we cite the father of PR, Edward Bernays, those of you who have seen Adam Curtis's Century of the Self, easily his best work in my opinion, already know how Bernay vulgarized the theories of his mother Anna's brother Sigismund and put psychoanalysis to a different use than the doctor had intended. Some of you might also know that the Bernays family run Netflix and are thus still very much one of the gatekeepers to our cultural hegemony today. Let me nonetheless read to you from Bernays' magnum opus, Propaganda, from 1912, a title and a word from a time when it had not yet split its tongue in two to define itself. Quote, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. 
vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. Our invisible governors are, in many cases, unaware of the identity of their fellow members in the inner cabinet. They govern us by their qualities of natural leadership, their ability to supply needed ideas and by their key position in the social structure. Whatever attitude one chooses toward this condition, it remains a fact that in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons. A trifling fraction of our 120 million who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, who harness old social forces and contrive new ways to bind and guide the world. It is not usually realized how necessary these invisible governors are to the orderly functioning of our group life. In theory, every citizen may vote for whom he pleases, Our constitution does not envisage political parties as part of the mechanism of government, and its framers seem not to have pictured to themselves the existence in our national politics of anything like the modern political machine. But the American voters soon found that without organization and direction, their individual votes, cast perhaps for dozens of hundreds of candidates, would produce nothing but confusion. Invisible government, in the shape of rudimentary political parties, arose almost overnight. Ever since then we have agreed, for the sake of simplicity and practicality, that party machines should narrow down the field of choice to two candidates, or at most three or four. In theory, every citizen makes up his mind on public questions and matters of private conduct. In practice, if all men had to study for themselves the abstruse economic, political and ethical data involved in every question, they would find it impossible to come to a conclusion without anything. We have voluntarily agreed to let an invisible government sift the data and high-spot the outstanding issues so that our field of choice shall be narrowed to practical proportions. From our leaders and the media they use to reach the public, we accept the evidence and the demarcation of issues bearing upon public question. From some ethical teacher, be it a minister, a favorite essayist, or merely prevailing opinion, we accept a standardized code of social conduct to which we conform most of the time. End of quote. Wow, (laughs) I thought the first time. If only the enemy was as honest today, then it would be a hell of a lot easier for the masses to cast away illusions and prepare for a struggle. If Bernays' vision of how democracies are to be formed and informed seems to be confusing and deceiving, then perhaps the best thing is to recognize that they are, of course, the primary methods. It is undoubtedly easier to deceive those who are confused. Bernays knows this. The biotech ambassadors knows it. And Bill Gates knows it.
The opposite of this final, quote, a standardized code of social conduct, end of quote, of which they speak, is called an anomie by Durkheim and the sociologist. Now it is telling that the Schmittian state of exception of the last three years, a biopolitical tumultus so intensive that it even brought the episteme of science into its zone of anomie and alienation, have with the war in Ukraine now lived up to Angamben's old formula of making the move of being an order without localization to a localization without order. From the omnipresent global Ausnahmestustand COVID-19 to the Verfassungswirklichkeit or the constitutional reality of violent land appropriation. Fighting a virus is just too fucking confusing. Fighting supposed communists, well, that we have been accustomed to for generations, since before the automobile and the vacuum cleaner. How pleasant that the world has once again returned to the realm of meaning. Traditionally, this is achieved by first ritually purifying the weapons of the soldiers during the Armilustrium festival of the last harvest in October, and then pick them up again during the Liberalia festival of Proserpina in March. As her prolonged carnival, when young boys stepped into manhood, marked the beginning of the season for military campaign and the return of humidity to the fertile soil. Initially, these were purely agricultural events. We might imagine sickles instead of swords, receiving your own land and bride as a farmer rather than the salary and uniform of a soldier. But by the time of the latter Romans of the Caesars, senators and priests alike had realized that if prosperity and liberty, as we call them today, and their mother Ceres, earthers of grain crops, are to be properly worshipped with fresh slaves and new land for the latifundias. Now they would need the protection of another god. That is how those festivals came to change in character, and how under the banner of disorder as order, as dictated by Mars, the god of war also became the garden of agriculture. The motherly festivals saw an increase of phallic symbolism, Emphasis was laid on the sowing of seeds instead of the return of the dampness to the vulva. Sorry, I mean the alluvia. The celebration of farming, in short, also became a celebration of war. In the new tradition, a chariot race would be held in Mars's honor at the end of February to kickstart the coming season of these mentioned war ag festivals. However, the equiria as it was called, of last year, came early for us modernites, not on the 27th of February, as is the custom, but on the 23rd, as NATO panzer chariots got into position in Eastern Europe, and on the 24th, as the Russian ones were rolled into the Donbass. Though considering the makeshift nature of Augustus leap year solutions and climate change, the celestial bodies and their seasons might still be in order, and, you know, we are on an accurate track. Though, seriously speaking, this political theology always already finds itself to be in the right, as the last lines of the Orphic hymns to Nomos 
the spirit of the law tells us. Foe to the lawless with avenging ire, their steps involving in destruction dire. Come bless abundant power, whom all revere by all desire. What favoring mind draw near, give me through life on thee to fix my fight, and never forsake the equal paths of right. Yes, it is now, dear listener, as it was then, i.e., the one of abundant power calls out the lawless, which is why Schmidt, at least unlike the liberals, whose golems we see gathering in Ukraine, told it like it is when he defined the sovereign as the state authority that decides in the last instance, without the possibility of appeal. Regarding the sovereign as an acting subject and not as a legal figure. According to Schmidt, it is not legally formed, but it creates the legal form in that the sovereign establishes the legal framework. Quote, order must be established, so that legal order has meaning. End of quote. Now it's getting circular, yes. <laughs> and yes, of course, we know that they only serve the law of continuous capital reproduction. But they cannot very well proclaim that and suggest openly that all must be sacrificed in its name. Not even the imperial subjects of Rome would have accepted that, as we just saw. That's why they had those festivals. Furthermore, the modern story that we are told by the propaganda apparatus right now does have a grotesque body, just like the old ancient carnivals. The public image of the anti-sovereign is by now almost synonymous with Putin for most idle plebs in the developed world. This much is obvious for anyone who has the privilege of time to sit down and think rather than being stressed to form an informed conformist opinion before they return to work and the coffee break discussions. I was however surprised to find out that at the heart of this PSYOP, the aforementioned Hill-Knowlton strategies of the biggest PR firm in the world, already had a history of instigating war on false premises to accumulate raw material. It was they who in 1990 helped cook up the Naira testimony for the citizens of a free Kuwait public relations campaign. The object of the national campaign was to raise awareness in the United States about the dangers posed by Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. Hill and Knowlton conducted a $1 million study to determine the best way to win support for strong action. H&K had the Worthington Group conduct focus groups to determine the best strategy that would influence public opinion. The study found that an emphasis on atrocities would be the most effective. On October 10, 1990, a certain Naira was the last to testify at the United States Congressional Human Rights Caucus. In her oral testimony, which lasted four minutes, she claimed that after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, she had witnessed Iraqi soldiers taking babies out of the incubators in a Kuwaiti hospital, remove the incubators and leave the babies to die. After Naira's uh, testimony, a guest was called in to comment, known only as the paranoid hamburger. Talking hamburger with paranoia? They actually swap babies at the hospital. That's no bullshit. <laughs> Seriously, though, the Congressional Human Rights Foundation is a non-governmental organization 
that investigates human rights abuse. It was headed by Democratic US Representative Tom Lantos and Republican Representative John Porter and rented space in Hill Knowlton Washington headquarters at a $3,000 reduced rate. Naira's testimony was then widely publicized. HK, which had filmed the hearing, sent out a video news release to MediaLink, a firm which served about 700 television stations in the United States. It was cited numerous times by U.S. Senators and President George H.W. Bush in the rationale to support Kuwait in the Gulf War. It was later revealed that uh, Naira was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States and that her testimony was false. German historian Andreas Elter stated, quote, The work of the U.S. advertising agency for the Kuwaiti carried the signature of the White House in a certain way. President Bush was briefed by Fuller on every single step. Whether he also gave his personal consent for the baby story, however, cannot be proven. What remains, however, is that close personal contact existed between the U.S. government and an agency that had demonstratively given birth to lies. The same agency was even directly employed by U.S. government in another context. Um, he is not referring to our context, though if he knew about it when he wrote this, I'm sure he would have added that as well. Um, let's make this web even more intricate. The executive vice president of uh, Hill Knowlton Strategies from June 2013 to June 2020 was David Bowen, who according to himself on LinkedIn led a global consulting and communications practice in healthcare and life sciences. Partners include companies, non-profit organizations and healthcare providers. He is now senior advisor at the Advanced Research Project Agency for Health, the ARPA-H. Before both of these positions, he was the deputy director of the Global Health Policy and Advocacy of none other than the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where he again, in his own words, quote, represented the Gates Foundation to political leaders up to the level of head of state, end of quote. This might seem vague, but I'm just adding details. We already know Gates is well-connected and financially tied to more than a handful of the really big players in the Ukraine debacle. We have him at the scene of the crime, as it were. And this goggled-eyed freak, I wear glasses myself, so I'm allowed to say that, <laughs> hasn't had a single alibi since he had dinner with Epstein. The motives, I think, will become clearer in the next episode as we go along, and so will the circumstantial evidence. However, finally, I think, in a public newsletter from the Ukraine-US Business Council, we can read about the murder weapon. As early as 2005, almost immediately after the Orange Revolution and the Agent Orange assassination attempt, the new pro-EU head of state Yushchenko met with Gates in Davos to discuss the change of the Ukrainian investment climate. And wouldn't you know it, piracy and intellectual property right laws on seeds. Oh dear listener, in our father's biotech barn there are many rotating doors.